please join me as we continue in Acts. We're going to be looking at Acts 19 tonight. Or continuing in Acts 19. All right, and we will be starting with verse 8. So Acts 19, verse 8. Oh, yes, please stand for this reading of God's word. Thank you. And he, that is Paul, entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some, because of stubborn and continued in a, but when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannius. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard, Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jews and exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus, Lord Jesus, over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit leaped on them, mastering all of them and overpowering them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this because became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now unbelievers came, confessing and de deluging their practices. Divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they continued the value of them, found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is God's word. You be seated. Thanks, Brent. Was a mouthful. All right. <clears throat> I have a couple just quick announcement reminders just want to like check in with everybody hey how are your story and table groups going good <laughs> the holidays are done we're into the new year i just want to encourage you i mean we had brunch this morning with our group and uh the first time in like a month and a half i don't know it's been a while but uh just check in with each other Check in with each other. Get get together if you can. Find time to, to make that happen. Uh, it's worth it every time. Uh, let's see, a couple, couple other things. This uh, Brent's pro tip, 
by the way, with the daily prayer rhythms, which if you, uh, if you haven't been with us since the new year, like Britain hasn't been here, um, this is something we're doing and uh, really emphasizing, and we're going to keep talking about it. And my hope is that you all keep talking about it too. So share the pro tips. I heard there was some talk at Women's Fellowship, was it last week? Looking for somebody to about daily prayer rhythms and how to, how to like involve that into busy um, busy lives. Those sort of things are super important that we uh, we actually figure out how this stuff works in like real lived out chaotic lives. So it's enough for me to stand up here and say, hey, every morning pray the Lord's prayer and midday pray for the lost and in the evening pray a prayer of gratitude and shift your attention to the Lord. But in the like working out of that, phone call goes a long way. And like finding the ways to make that actually work in your life is the point. So these are all tools. They're, they're tools and mechanisms to help you shift your attention to Lord Jesus throughout the day. Use them as tools. That's what they are. I like jotted down some notes here. Hey, there's some football game happening right now, right? <laughs> Nobody here knows because you're here. It's all right. The Yeah, I was going to joke and say I was giving away the score, but I have no idea. Um, we will be here on the Super Bowl. We will be here on the Super Bowl. Just heads up, clarifying. Like, we will be meeting during the Super Bowl. Uh, so... We'll be here. We're going to try to find a way to hang out afterwards. That's kind of our hope and our goal. But the reality is that we are still going to worship Jesus. We're still going to meet. We're still going to be here. I know it's a direct time conflict. But we'll be here. Okay? Last of my little jot, jotted down notes. Do you guys hear the kids today during the Apostles' Creed, during the worship? We do the Apostles' Creed every week, and I know sometimes it feels like this, like, routine, rote thing that we do that sometimes can feel like it loses its power and its majesty and, <clears throat> and its explanation. But you know what? Hearing the kids do it every week, that is going to get in them. And the story of redemption, the story of, of the doctrine that we believe and that shapes us and forms us is getting inside of them. And, you know, our prayer, actually, let's just, this is kind of random, but let's pray right now, actually, real quick, that those truths would go deep and anchor into our kids. So, Jesus, we just thank you for our kids who are over in class right now getting ready to hear your word taught. And we ask, God, that, that week after week as they are here with us, seeing their parents and their loved ones and their church family worship, hearing and, and exalting you, and they hear and they recite the, Lord, the uh, Apostles' Creed. <clears throat> God, that those truths, the reality of the story of God would go deep in their hearts. That it would create a, a bedrock, a foundation, would create deep roots in you. That as they grow, they would not depart from it. Jesus, that you would anchor that deep in them and you would keep them in your heart. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay.
think that's all my notes. Did I miss anything? Is there anything else I should be announcing? I don't know. Okay. Um, <clears throat> we are continuing through the book of Acts. We're in Acts chapter 19, and this is a fun story. This is <laughs> quite an interesting one, right? The seven sons of Sceva who are chased out and run off naked. This, honestly, this story of Ephesus is one that is super fascinating to me. It's sort of the prototype, uh, the prototypical, like, example we have of a city in revival. When God shows up in a city, this, the city of Ephesus is like the prototype for that. And as somebody, like, throughout my Christian life, I've been fascinated with the with the history of, of these revivals. And it seems like, like going back to Ephesus, there's these moments in history where God shows up in a town or a city and he does something unique, he does something extreme even, and he moves in a way. And so Ephesus is sort of this prototype, this, this beginning here. And God moved powerfully in a way, in Ephesus, that he had not yet, I mean, this was, this is something completely new. But before we really get into the meat of that tonight, we, we look at some of what God was doing in Ephesus, I want to sort of set the stage for what allowed that to happen. What allowed that work of God, work of the Holy Spirit, to happen. So let's look back at what Paul began to do. And we're jumping back into what we looked at a little bit last week, jumping to verse 8. But as was Paul's custom, now we're very used to this. In every city Paul visits, he goes to the synagogue. He goes to the synagogue and he proclaims the kingdom. He proclaims Jesus as the Messiah. He reasoned and persuaded with them about the kingdom of God. For three months he's there. For three months he's reasoning and persuading. He's debating with those in the synagogue. Eventually, some in the synagogue get this hard heart, and they begin to slander the way publicly. They begin to slander Paul in the way and the church that's growing, and opposition develops. And so Paul takes the disciples, and they go to this public meeting hall, the hall of Tyrannus. Tyrannus. He takes his new converts, and they, they look for a different location, but they continue his teaching. They went to this public meeting hall, probably the local hall, uh, or the hall of a local professor or a, a philosopher, probably named Tyrannus, which oddly enough, means tyrant, tyrant, and uh, it's difficult for me, it's really hard for me to imagine somebody's parent, actually, maybe it's not that hard, naming their child tyrant, but most people think that this guy's students nicknamed him this, that this was like a nickname that his students gave him, that he was a tyrant, but what would happen, or, or what, what tradition claims, we don't actually know for sure, but the, the professor, the tyrant, would take a siesta in the middle of the day, and from 11 to 4, somewhere around there, when people would cease to work in the heat of the day, 
Paul would show up in this hall and he would teach and he would stop his tent making and he would go to this public hall and he would teach. And Luke tells us that he did this daily. That daily he was here. Every day, six days a week, he would take his Sabbath. And for six days a week, he was there for an extended period of time proclaiming the word of God. This means hundreds of hours of teaching, of public reading of Scripture, of proclamation of the Word of God, and of of teaching of the kingdom. Hundreds of hours in the city of Ephesus. It's no wonder that there's a work of God in Ephesus that would spread throughout all of Asia Minor. Hundreds of hours of proclamation of the Word. This all makes sense in theory. I mean, Paul was working as a tent maker, we know, and he was, he, was, uh, he was doing his work. And then I can imagine that he's taking his break. And from his own daily prayer rhythms, there's things that he's been meditating on and, and talking to the Lord about. And he shows up in this public meeting hall and he begins to share what he's uh, sensing from the Lord and the direction and what the scriptures are teaching and how to work out your, your faith. And he's doing things while he's in Ephesus. He's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's planting churches in all around in Asia Minor. Churches are getting planted. It's probable that the origin of most of the churches that Jesus addresses in the, in the book of Revelation date from this period. Colossians, Colossae is just inland a little bit from Ephesus. This, this is a pretty important, really important epicenter of ministry. But before we can talk about what the Holy Spirit did and and the the revival that broke out, it's really important to point out that the awakening, the revival that happens in Ephesus begins and is continued in the Word with the proclamation of the Word of God. Its beginning, its foundation, and its continuance, the whole way through is centered on regular, faithful proclamation of the Word of God. Later, when Paul reflected on his ministry in in Ephesus, we're going to look at this in a couple weeks, in Acts 20, Paul emphasizes his primary task there was to expound the Scriptures to everyone. Listen to the way he says this. Acts 20, verse 20. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jew and to Greek of repentance towards God and of faith in the Lord Jesus. Acts 20, 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. And then again in in verse 31 and 32 of 20, he says, therefore be alert, remembering word remembering is important today. Remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish you every, every one with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. And as we get into this story, I mean, we're going to talk about like, you know, 
sweat rags healing people and demons beating people up. This is an amazing little story that we have in Acts. But it's really important <clears throat> that Luke brackets this story. Verse 20, look at, look at chapter 19, verse 20. Chapter 19, verse 20. Sorry, verse 10. We're going to get to verse 20 in just a second. This went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jew and Greek, heard the word of the Lord. And then now jump to verse 20. In this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. That's a really important bracket. When Luke is, is encasing this story of these crazy things happening with this reference to the word of the Lord. He's bracketing it. Verse 10, that this continued in verse 20, that the word of the Lord increased and prevailed mightily. I think super, uh, chapter, uh, verse 20 is really important. <clears throat> Verse 20 is really important. Elsewhere, previously in Acts, we've had statements similar to this. In Acts 6, Luke says, the word of God continued and increased, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And then in Acts 12, again, more recently, the word of the Lord increased and multiplied. But here in Acts 19, it's something different. I think this is a really important backdrop. It's not that the word of God just multiplied or increased. We're told that the word of the Lord prevailed. The word of the Lord prevailed. And to pre prevail implies conflict. To prevail means that the word of the Lord was shown to have strength and capability uh, for some purpose. It, it was to do something. To prevail means that the reward of increase was not just automatic, that it was a hard-fought battle with the Scriptures, with, faced with resistance and opposition. So 1920 tells us that the Word not only prevails, but it prevailed mightily. I think this should be a good reminder for us. The scripture, the word of the Lord prevails mightily. It is powerful to accomplish what it sets out to do. Even when there's forces working against us. No doubt why Paul would say things like this, the word is a sword. The, the, God's word is called a sword in, in Ephesians. So for three months, Paul spoke boldly in the synagogue dialoguing and debating and persuading. And then he goes and he's in public proclaiming the word of God requires a response. Requires that there's a, a uh, response to it. And so what we see develop is the outworking of the scripture here. Those who heard Paul at the synagogue, it says that they were revilers of the way, that they, 
they actually ended up, let me see what it says here. They were, hardened and would not believe, and they slandered the way in front of the crowd. For three months, Paul dialogued with them, and then he moves to the hall of the tyrant, and for two years, he would publicly proclaim. To the point where all the residents of Asia Minor heard the word of the Lord. Verse 10 says, Not only did they hear the word of the Lord, but they witnessed the power to authenticate what Paul preached. This is where we get into the sort of the meat of the story. Verse 11. If you have your Bibles, you can look there. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick. And their disease left them and evil spirits came out of them. Extraordinary miracles. Paul's work here, his mission in Ephesus was being accompanied. It was, it was being uh, backed up, so to speak, by these extraordinary miracles. The word miracle here <clears throat> is the word in the Greek, it's the word dunamis. It's the same word used in Acts 1.8 when Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You'll receive power. It's the same word. And in the context here of Paul's mission in Ephesus, this is the power of God. God is showing up in a visible way through these miracles. But it's important to notice that Luke tells us that Paul was not the source of these miracles. Paul is not the source of these miracles. God was the source. This is important lest the Ephesians think that for some reason Paul himself is powerful. Lest we hear this word and we think that we ourselves have any power or any intrinsic ability to conjure something up and to make a miracle happen. We don't have that power. Luke writes very clearly that that power, that dunamis, that power, extraordinary miracles, that that was the work of God. Verse 11 says, God was doing. God was doing. God was performing these miracles. He was doing it by the hands of Paul. God is always the miracle worker. Paul was not powerful. He was empowered, and that's an important distinction to make. Paul himself was not a powerful man, but he was empowered by God for a purpose in the city of Ephesus. And so God worked and performed extraordinary miracles. Paul was an instrument, a tool in the hand of the Lord. The Holy Spirit worked through him for these miracles. 
so that all who are in Ephesus and all that were in the world surrounding them might know that there is a living God who is actually at work. He's not an idol that fell from the sky like they worshipped in Ephesus. He's not an idol that sits on a statue somewhere, but a living God who lives and acts and works, and we saw him work through Paul. It testifies clearly that our God is powerful and that his power transcends the realms. It's from the heavens and the earth together. He's not explicitly just in the heavens, both physical and spiritual. Note the description word, the, the describing word here in verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. Not just ordinary miracles. These are extraordinary miracles. Now, I know, by, by definition, a miracle is extraordinary. By definition, if God does something supernatural, that's, that's extraordinary. But apparently, in the biblical worldview, apparently, there is such a thing as an ordinary miracle. We know, we know as God's people, what it's like to pray. To pray that God would work some sort of miracle, that he would deliver us from something or someone. We know that we, we have that sort of relationship with the Lord. We know what it's like to need God to intervene in a supernatural way. We've all been there at different measures. We're all walking through that in different measures. We pray that God would do something unnatural, that he would do something extraordinary, that he would bring healing, that he would bring guidance, that he would bring provision, that he, like we've, we pray these prayers, that he would change a life and save a loved one. Those are miracles. Those are works that only God can do. That he would make a way when there is no way. But apparently, not all miracles are alike. I think there are, in fact, or at least it seems that there's ordinary miracles and then there's extraordinary miracles. The type of miracles that God was working here through Paul in Ephesus are described as extraordinary. The original Greek language makes this, like, super clear. It says... Miracles, not the ordinary kind. Pretty clear. These are not ordinary miracles. And this tells us something, I think, about the spiritual climate in Ephesus, about the environment that Paul's working in. Ephesus was not dealing in the normal realms of society. Ephesus would not have necessarily been moved by these normal miracles would not have been necessarily moved by God showing up and changing a, a heart and, like, fixing an attitude. Those are, that's a miracle, God doing that. But that would not have moved these guys. 
Ephesus had this reputation throughout the known world as a center of learning and of the practice of magical arts. In the writings of the day, documents have been found, these spells and these formulas, and in other documents describing magic spells, they're called Ephesian writings. This is what part of what Ephesus was known for. This is how the city of Ephesus was known throughout the world, is this place of magic and of spells. And it was a city that was somewhat callous to signs and wonders, somewhat callous to miracles. Oh, there's magic. They would call that normal. They all worshipped these idols. They, they believed they dabbled in this, this magic, and it gave this foothold to the enemy, the powers of darkness to thrive. And so it's no wonder that God was showing up in the way he was. In the midst of all of this, and this is what I love about God, he shows up. He acts. Like he, he actually shows up and meets them in their needs. In a city that was known for their magic arts, known for these supernatural manifestations, God meets them where they are, and his word prevailed. His word accomplished something great, this victory. To a people used to ordinary miracles, God showed his power working through Paul in these extraordinary miracles. Something so incredible that the entire region took note and paid attention. God showed the Ephesians that he, and he alone, has power and victory over all that they were dealing with. Even over the spiritual powers of darkness. Okay, so what kind of these extraordinary miracles did God work through Paul? We're not told all of them, but we're given some examples here. Verse 12 says this. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. It would be miraculous enough for someone like Paul to walk by and with a word or with a touch to cast out a demon. Or to heal somebody of their disease. That would be extraordinary enough. That would be miraculous enough. But in an extraordinary fashion, these things were being done indirectly through Paul's dirty clothes. Something so small, so seemingly powerless, even one step removed... Somehow God was using. And I know this example, like, charlatans still use this. And they try to, like, sell you some anointed thing. Doesn't work that way, as we're going to see. The word handkerchief here is some, something like a sweat cloth. Got to remember, it's, it's hot. 
Paul's working with his hands. He's building tents. He's sweating. He's wiping himself. <laughs> Sweat cloth. This is nothing glamorous. Likewise, an apron is something that he would wear in part of his work building tents. As I think about this, I imagine this probably happened at, by accident at first. Like, I, I'm, I'm not sure. Like, Paul doesn't seem like the guy that'd be like, here, take my sweaty dirt rag. It doesn't really seem. But, but maybe in a superstitious manner, in a superstitious climate and environment, the city of Ephesus, somebody desperate for healing and had heard these stories Paul proclaimed and seen the miracles that, Paul was, that God was working through Paul and heard the stories of Jesus walking through and the woman who touched the hem of his garment, maybe somebody in a superstitious manner took his cloth. I, this is a conjecture. I don't know. And they were healed. And then maybe it became a pattern and others imitated it. We, we don't actually know. All of this we see is, is possible because of the superstitious practices and magic and sorcery that was prevalent in the city of Ephesus. It would not be surprising if they took some superstitious manner and they took it and turned it into something. But here's what's amazing to me. Even if it was that, God will stoop down and meet us in our desperate cry for him. Even if it's just our foolish superstition, God will meet us, as he does here. God meets them, and there's healings that are happening. Demons are being cast out. And clearly, this doesn't mean that God is pleased with our superstition. But he has mercy, and he is always looking for opportunity to love his kids. But it's worth noting, I mentioned the charlatans, the, the people trying to sell anointed cloths. It's worth, worth noting here that Paul was not in the miracle business. Paul wasn't making money and making a living advertising and performing miracles for financial gain. This is not what Paul was doing. He probably could have. He was in, in the city of Ephesus. He probably could have thrived in Ephesus doing that. There was a market for it. There was, there was worship and even interest in that sort of a thing. But Paul instead worked. He worked as a tent maker. He, he used his hands to supply his needs. I think all a very intentional thing given the environment he was in. And when he wasn't working, we know that Paul made really good use of his time preaching and proclaiming and, and working in the, the, the lecture hall and going house to house. But verse 13 introduces us to a different group who, unlike Paul, they did make their living in a different way. They did make a profit in a different way. Verse 13 and 14 some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of Jesus. 
the, the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. What a fascinating story. These itinerant Jewish exorcists, they traveled around attempting to cast out demons. The presence of these exorcists, I think, tells us something about the city of Ephesus. Shows us something of the need that was there. So these would attempt, these guys would attempt to cast out demons by appealing to a higher power. And the, the word here, they undertook, it, it's, it's they attempted. It means they had no success, but they attempted to cast out these demons. And they attempted to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus. Not because they knew Jesus or had any relationship with Jesus. Not because they were interested even but because they had seen the extraordinary miracles being worked by the hands of Paul. They had seen the power of God on display in the meeting hall as Paul proclaimed the word and people were getting healed. They'd heard the stories of people touching the cloths and getting healed. They obviously definitely heard the message Paul proclaimed about the Lord Jesus. And they recognized clearly where Paul's authority came from. They recognized clearly where his power came from. It was from Jesus. So much so that they didn't invoke the name of Paul. They said, the Jesus that Paul's talking about, that's the guy. There was never any doubt concerning the source of Paul's power. There was never any doubt concerning where that came from. This tells us something, I think, really important. I think this implies that when a miracle was accomplished, when a miracle happened and something broke out, it always was accompanied by Paul pointing to Jesus. It was always accompanied by the gospel, the reality of the good news. Every supernatural thing that happened in Ephesus pointed directly to the work of the cross and to the victorious Jesus. It was credited clearly to the power and authority of Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Miracles are power displayed for a purpose. For a purpose. They always have a purpose. And when we pray for God to do something miraculously, when we ask him to do something that's just completely beyond what we naturally would hope to see, I think that God's word challenges us to pray not just for a miracle as an end to itself, but for the purpose of that miracle that God would be exalted and glorified, that the cross would be proclaimed, that the gospel would be made known. It is always for our good and his glory. It's never for our glory. It's always for his glory. And so we have these <clears throat> seven sons of Sceva. Verse 14. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva, 
we're doing this. I feel like every commentary I read made some comment about that being a, a band name. Oh, wow. Seven Sons of Sceva. Verse 15, the evil spirits answered them, Jesus I know, this is so fascinating, Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? If a demon's saying that to you, that's, that's, that's not a good sign. It's not a good sign. Jesus I know, the evil spirit had knowledge, knew clearly Jesus. Jesus I know, Paul, I recognize. Recognize is a different word. But Paul had done something, had been, been active, and, and there was some awareness. I recognize Paul. But who are you, the demons say? The evil spirits didn't know anything about these seven sons of Sceva who were calling on the name of Jesus to profit off of it. Which is why I think it's so ironic that people would use this story <laughs> to sell things. They hadn't even measured. They had no success in their exorcism because they hadn't even measured or registered on the, on the like seismometer here of what these demons recognized. Verse 16, and the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. This is a fascinating story. Seven guys, seven guys, one demon-possessed guy. After trying to add Jesus' name to their, like, hocus-pocus, trying to call on Jesus that they had no knowledge of, trying to cast out this evil spirit, this, these seven sons get completely humiliated. Completely humiliated. As demons often do in the New Testament, this one testifies clearly to the power and authority of Jesus, acknowledges without question, Jesus has authority. This time, they also testify to Paul, and they essentially say, look, I know that Jesus can best me. I know he can deal with me. Paul, that guy's doing some things, but I have no idea who you are. And so they, they take them to task. These wizards, these, these, these guys did not belong to Jesus, and the demon wasn't forced to relinquish any control because they lacked any real authority, any real power, any commissioning to do this work. So instead of being kicked out, these evil spirits, these demons that tormented the man, he becomes supernaturally strong and proceeds to, to, to beat these guys up. Matt Chandler, in his sermon on this passage, said this. If when the fight starts, you're wearing pants, and when it's over, you're no longer wearing pants, you lost. The reality is, guys, we should, we should magnify Jesus' name. It should be an object of worship. We can't try to 
conjure things up and misuse it for, for some sort of witchcraft or magic spell. There's no control here. Only Jesus' people submitted to him, looking to him, to his lordship and his leadership, have any authority under his power and his name. The way of Jesus is ultimately about allegiance and submission to him. To him. But the story also reminds us of the reality and the influence of the enemy. There is a real enemy. There are real demons. These are things. These aren't just stories. But the reality is, the greater reality, is that Jesus is superior. His power is superior. He's greater. Another thing that really stands out to me in this is worthwhile pointing out. You can't. Your faith must be your own. You can't just point, hey, I I sat in the lecture hall and I heard the pastor preach. The Jesus that he preached, yeah, he's going to do this thing. That's not how this works. You can't appeal to the faith of your mother or father. You can't appeal to the faith of your brother or sister or of your spouse. You can't appeal to somebody else's faith and say, look, they believe, they have allegiance, they worship, they live their life for Jesus. I'm good, right? That's not how this works. The scriptures here clearly record this question that the evil spirits, these demons ask, and it's important. Who are you? Who are you? Same question applies to this group, this this church. Who are you? Who are we? It doesn't matter your faith tradition. It doesn't matter your denomination. It doesn't matter your political affiliation. It doesn't matter how you might have the right doctrinal positions. You might have the right theological knowledge. You might even live moral, upright lives. None of that matters if you don't know Jesus. If you aren't in a real relationship with him where you really are living your life in alignment with him. What matters is your own allegiance, your own submission to his lordship and his leadership. The power that we see here that that births this revival, the power there comes from knowing the source. It's in knowing Jesus can't be conjured through another, must be received directly. In Acts 19, 17, this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jew and Greek, and fear fell upon all of them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Ephesus woke up. This is revival now. This is prototypical revival. God shows up, does something, and gets people's attention. And they saw things 
that they'd never seen before. They saw power in the name of the Lord Jesus that was so powerful that it cast out powers of darkness, that expelled demons and diseases. They heard the proclamation of the word. They heard the preaching of, of the powerful Jesus, and they saw it lived out through the Apostle Paul. And all of this, and all of that that was happening, the name, instead of being misused for witchcraft and controlled, the proper response is that the name of Jesus was extolled. The word extolled means to exalt, to glorify, or to magnify, to make big. Worship broke out in the city of Ephesus. This is the pattern for revival, for God doing incredible works in history. It was not Paul who was exalted. It was Jesus who was exalted. And once again, everyone was able to trace right back to the source, to King Jesus. Verse 18 and 19. <clears throat> I'm running out of time. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts also brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. They counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of, pieces of silver. So I want to highlight something here. This is Christians. These are believers. These are those who had submitted to Jesus, who had heard Paul proclaim the gospel. Literally, this could be translated, many of those who had believed came. The ones who are coming here and confessing and di disclosing their practices and burning their books of magic spells, they're Christians. These were not the idol worshipers or the pagans throughout the city. These, these are believers. For sure, many of these, are, I'm sure, are new converts, new, new to the faith. But these were believers who had still held on to these, these books and had practiced the magic arts. These believers had still had their books in their homes. And while they may have turned from their former ways, they may have left that behind to follow Jesus, they were not free at this point from them because they still held on to them. They kept them in their home. Here's the question. Here's the question. What causes a Christian to remain powerless? What causes a Christian church to remain powerless? What causes a Christian to be ineffective, useless, and even become hindrances to the gospel advancing? I think this is the answer. Hanging on to what Christ has already freed you from. Holding tightly to the thing that Christ has already freed you from. What do you think the main motivation for them holding on to these in the city of Ephesus was? The main motivation for them keeping this 
It's financial stability. Financial gain. Why else do you think Luke points out the value of these books? We know the second half of this chapter is going to deal clearly with the financial implications of what God was doing here. It was breaking up the stability. Money was to be made off of these books. Money was to be made off the working of magic and practices in Ephesus. The inspiration of religion here in, the, in Ephesus was financial gain, financial stability. So they found freedom in burning these books. Anytime I hear stories of book burning, I get a little nervous. I'm not, not, not encouraging book burning, but this is a... <clears throat> This was a free thing they did on their own. No compulsion. Paul's not saying, go burn all your books. At least we don't have that recorded. This was something in their own. They could not hold on to their former way of life anymore. They couldn't look to this working of magic to find some financial stability anymore. They had to let it go. And fire ultimately is a great way in the day, it was the most destructive way of completely getting rid of something. They gave up all that was hindering them from following the Lord fully and powerfully. And they threw it in the fire. As much as book burning sometimes bothers me here, I do like that they didn't just give them away or sell them. They destroyed them. It's costly to do, considering the total expense. We're talking, it says 50,000, where is it? 50,000 pieces of silver, 50,000 days' wages. It's a lot of money. The costly expense to be burned. But these believers wanted a very clear and radical break from this thing that was poisoning their faith, this thing that was holding them back. It was unacceptable for them to continue to spread that nonsense, spread the poison that they contained. Why? Let's see if I can wrap this up. The Ephesians had a new affection. This city was birthed in this move of God. They had a new love for Jesus. Their affections, their act, these actions shouted, he's more valuable. Jesus is more valuable than these books. These 50,000 days wages, Jesus is worth it. He's more worth my financial stability. He's more valuable than the powers of these magic arts. He's more powerful. He's more worth all of it. They had a new love and a new affection. When a person has genuinely submitted their life to Jesus, we get a new affection. Our loves, our, our old desires, our old interests are replaced with new ones.
These believers in Ephesus, I think they illustrate this dynamic. The Ephesians loved many things. They were known for their sports, their theater, their idols, their famed goddess Artemis. They were known for their wealth. But when Paul preaches the gospel and the Holy Spirit opens their eyes, many in the city, they experience the change of their affections. Their love shifted. The affection of their heart shifted. This phrase is an important one. It leads to what we're going to look at next week, this riot that breaks out. No little disturbance concerning the way. Christ's work through Paul, this, this outpouring in Ephesus, caused a bunch of disturbances. As I've been thinking this through this week, <clears throat> I couldn't help but think the letters that Paul wrote, sorry, the letters that Jesus sent to the churches in the book of Revelation. If you have your Bible, go to Revelation chapter 2. We should be aware that with Ephesus, we know where the story goes. We're not talking necessarily about the book of Ephesians tonight, but the book of Ephesians is incredible because all of the other epistles, Paul has a rebuke. But in Eph the book of Ephesians, there's, there's nothing bad. It's, it's all good stuff. Paul loved this church. He planted this church. He was there for a long time. There's good things happening in this church. And you get to this Section in Revelation, there's these letters, these, these little notes. They're in red in your Bible, if you have a red-letter Bible. These are notes from Jesus to the churches in Asia Minor. And he writes one to Ephesus, and it says this, starting in chapter 2, verse 1. The angel, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write, The word of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and have found them to be false. I know that you have endured patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. That's all really good stuff, Jesus says. Verse 4. But, but, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Ooh. I have this against you, Jesus says. You have abandoned the love that you had at first. And here's what he says to do. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent. Means change the way you think. Go a different direction. And do the works you did at first. Talking clearly, I think, about this story we have. If not, I will come and remove your lampstands, your, your influence from its place, unless you repent. 
thriving church. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, Jesus says. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. Jesus rebuking them that they, their love that they had at first had been forgotten. They've abandoned the love, the passion, the, the adoration for Jesus that moved them at first to do crazy things. What began in passionate adoration for Jesus had now grown cold. May it never be for us. May we continue to cultivate our love for him. May we continue to confess the things that we hold on to, the things that we, we, we grasp hold of to retain from our old way of life. May we lay them down and destroy them completely. May we forsake the things that keep us from loving him wholly. May we seek his word that prevails mightily. May we seek him fully. May we remember that he is our greatest good and he's our highest joy. May we reject all rivals. May we revere the Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Remember and repent. Let's pray tonight. Jesus, I thank you for these stories of you showing up throughout history, of these out, outbreakings of renewal, revival, that you show up and that you do something that changes the course of human history. Thank you for these stories that we have through the book of Acts of you working mightily, And God, I ask tonight that we would remember the love that we had at first. That you would remind us, God, of the place of affection that we used to have for you. Of the, the adoration that you deserve. Of your supreme value. That you are more valuable than our stability. You're more valuable than our comfort. You're more valuable than anything because you are the love of our life. Help us to remember our first love and to look to you as the author and the perfecter of our faith. Jesus, you alone are worthy. And we love you and bless you. In Jesus' name.